much, Pastor Joshua. Thank you all. Thank you. I want to let you know, because you may not know this, you guys have been incredible with the standing ovations. I just want you to know, in case you don't know, the faculty think you're awesome. And you should know that. The faculty absolutely think that you guys are awesome. So, Pastor Joshua is right. We are talking this week about the Holy Spirit, and in particular, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Now, if I tell you that we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, we could get two kinds of responses from that, right? One is you might be a Pentecostal, and I say we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in Acts, and your first thought is, oh, they're going to talk about spirit baptism in tongues all week. Or you might not be a Pentecostal. And I tell you, we're going to talk about spirit in the book of Acts, and your thought is, oh, they're going to talk about spirit baptism in tongues all week. I want you to know there are a lot of different kinds of encounters with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And every single chapel, we're going to talk about a different kind. And some of those kinds aren't always pleasant. And we're going to talk about them. There's a lot that the Holy Spirit is doing in the book of Acts. But this morning, I'm going to talk about spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is sometimes treated among Pentecostals as kind of an elusive spiritual experience that results in speaking in tongues that only some people get. How many of you know that that's how some people think about it? In fact, I have an image of this. I know that last week, some of you on our campus tried to capture a mouse. There was a mouse in one room, and that mouse went to another room, and there were a bunch of people trying to capture that mouse. And I think for a lot of us, that's how we think of spirit baptism, right? It's this kind of elusive experience. It's over here, and now it's over there. And, oh, some people got it trapped in their room over here. Oh, there it goes. It's under that door. And that's how we think of this. Can I give you my own mouse story? It's actually a rat story. When I was in seminary, I lived in an apartment building that was an old, old apartment building with some other people who were also in grad school. In fact, almost everyone in this apartment building was in grad school. Some, some were there for ministry, some for their doctorate, some were there in psychology and counseling. It was this kind of unique group of people, everyone in their 20s and 30s. We had rats. It was this old building in Southern California. We had a rat in our building. We had a shared kitchen that was so comfortable being in our building you would walk into the shared kitchen, and that rat would be on the sink eating, look up at you and be like, what's up? And then keep right back eating. Wouldn't even run away. So we called the people in charge of the building. We're like, you got to do something about the rat problem. And finally, they said, okay, okay, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. Their way of taking care of it was they laid out a glue trap in the kitchen. Now, if you know something about glue traps, the way glue traps work is a mouse or a rat will get caught on this trap, and then as they try to free themselves, the glue becomes even tighter, they get wrapped up more, and eventually the way they die is they starve to death. So, late one night, someone's knocking at my door, open the door, and there's like three people from my apartment building right at my door, and they're like, you got to help us. I'm like, what's wrong? They're like, there is a rat trapped in our kitchen. It is starving to death. It is crying out. Said, we've tried to set it free. Said, we put it under the sink, 
Try now, but let me tell you right now, I've learned since then, do not use water on a glue trap. That only makes it worse. You're not setting something free, you're waterboarding it. Don't do that. I'm going to give you a piece of advice right now. You ever want to get something free from a, from, a, from a glue trap? Cooking oil. Cooking oil is what you use. Do not use water. They're like, this rat is even worse now because now it's drowned? They're like, like, help us, help us. So I go there, and sure enough, this rat is making horrible sounds. More people come out of the building. Some people are starting to cry now over this rat. Uh, eventually, I'm like, well, guys, look, I don't know how to get rid of it, how to free it. And they're like, well, we've got to do something. We can't let it starve. I'm like, do you want me to kill it? And they're like, yes, would you kill it for us? I said, sure. And I pull out my pocket knife. Because I didn't have a gun, so I pull out my pocket knife. And they're like, no, no, not in the kitchen. I'm like, I guess that's right. So we go outside, and at this point, half the apartment building is now with us. And I get out there, and there's like a group of people. We have the rat in the middle of the floor on the ground. There are people around it. People are crying. This one girl is speaking in tongues. And I'm like, man, if someone comes on the scene and sees us, they're going to think we're a cult, right? This is the cult of the drowned rat right in front of us, right? So I'm like, I pull out the knife, and they're like, no, no. And I'm like, it's okay. I'm a Kentuckian. I can do this. No, no, no. They're like, don't do that. And I'm like, well, look, how does she want me to kill it? I see a cement block over here. And I'm like, well, here's a cement block. I could just take the block and drop it on the rat, right? And they're like, okay, do that. So I grab the block. At this point, more people are praying. I mean, we're surrounding this rat in prayer, right? I'm like, if the resurrection is going to happen for any rat, it's going to happen for this rat. I'm holding the block over the rat, listening to people pray. A couple people are crying. And now I'm feeling it, right? Because I'm in this crowd of people, and, and I'm like, I don't have the heart anymore to throw the block at the rat. So I just stand over the rat with the block, and I decide, just let gravity do it. I just let the block go. The block lands on the rat, bounces off the rat, at which point the rat jumps off the glue trap, leading half of his hair there, and he runs off and across the parking lot. The rat is saved. And I'm like, now, in Southern California, there is a half-naked rat who has a vengeance, right? Here's the thing. Here's the point of that whole story. We had asked our super to take care of our rat problem. We never thought what that would actually mean. We asked him to take care of it. We never thought what that would actually mean. I think in some ways we have the same problem with this idea of baptism in the Spirit is we might pray for it or not pray for it, but whether we're doing it or not, for whatever reason, we don't really know what it means, what it's for, what this is going to entail. So to explain that this morning, I'm going to give you quick three passages of Scripture. We're going to end here with Acts. I'm going to start Isaiah chapter 42, beginning here at verse number 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wilk he will not snuff out. And faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. Now, this is a messianic promise. It's given one that's actually quoted again in Matthew. But what's interesting is that it brings together three ideas. 
the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, and justice. The Messiah, the Holy Spirit, and justice. We sometimes miss how significant a theme justice is in the entire Bible. you got to remember, this was written by an oppressed people, and it was written to oppressed peoples. Israel was a minority nation. When some of these books were written, they were actually in exile, trying to hold on to their own culture, and the church was always a religious minority or sect when this was written. It was written by those who were oppressed to those who were oppressed. So, of course, it's going to talk about justice. And yet, sometimes in the church, we actually miss that. There's an Old Testament scholar, Michael Rhodes, who's writing a book now comparing the Old Testament to contemporary Christian worship. And he tweeted last week that he's doing his study of the Psalms. And he said, I'm comparing the Psalms and the themes of the Psalms to the top 25 songs right now in contemporary Christian worship. So this is Hillsong, this is Bethel, this is Elevation. And he said, you know how many times the word justice appears in the Psalms versus how many times it appears in Christian worship? Do you know how many times the words widow or orphan or the poor or the oppressed appear in the Psalms the songs we sing to God versus how many times it appears in contemporary Christian worship. And he said, now, I love contemporary Christian worship. I'm not criticizing that. But understand, this is what the church used to sing. We used to sing on behalf of the poor. We used to sing on behalf of the oppressed. Even when we weren't the oppressed, we sang for the oppressed. The Bible is about justice. And if God's going to bring justice to the world, he's going to bring it through his Messiah, but he's going to bring it through a Messiah who has the Spirit, because the point of having the Spirit is this. It's so I don't have to do it under my own power. Because when I do something under my own power, I am bound by my own limitations. If I'm going to be Messiah, and I'm going to bring justice to the nations, that's in this passage, I'm going to bring justice to the nations, If I'm doing it under my own power, the only way I can do that is by conquering. The only way I can do that is with an army. The only way I can do that is by becoming my own kind of tyrant. But if the Messiah is going to do this by the power of God, he can bring justice without breaking a bruised reed. He can bring justice without touching a smoldering wick. He can bring justice without having to leave a body count. That's the point in Matthew chapter 12. That's why this gets quoted there. Because Matthew's trying to answer the question, if Jesus is the Messiah, why doesn't he raise an army? And the answer is, because he's the kind of Messiah God wants for justice. The one who doesn't have a body count in order to bring it. How does that happen? By the Spirit of God. Now let's go to the next passage. This is John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3, verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts, if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, when John comes on the scene, and what happens right before this is John is preaching the judgment of God. So people are coming to John, and they're like, how do I get right before God, before God comes? How many have ever gotten in trouble before, and you had one parent tell you, wait till the other parent gets home? And you spent all day waiting for that other parent to get home. And you heard a car pull into the driveway, and you had footsteps on the sidewalk, and you heard the door open, and you heard one parent say to the other parent, let me tell you what happened today. And you start praying for the rapture, because now's the time Jesus should come back. Have you never had that experience? John the Baptist is telling people, God is coming. And if you aren't on the right side, you're going to be on the wrong side. So they're asking the question, what do we do? What do we do? And he says to them, if you have more than you need, share with those who are in need. And if you have power over people, don't use that power to exploit or oppress them. John has a message of justice. So when they ask him if you're the Messiah, he follows that right up with, no, no, no. I'm only baptizing you in water. But the one who comes after me, he's going to immerse you in the very spirit of God. But then he adds this, and in fire. And sometimes we think of the fire as being connected to the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk about being fired up by God. But in this passage, it's about judgment. You're either going to be immersed in God's presence or you're going to be immersed in God's wrath. Judgment is coming. He will take the wheat and he will put it in the barn, but he will burn up the chaff. And with that, he preached the good news to them. How is that good news? It's good news if you're the people who are being hurt. It's good news if you're the people who are being oppressed. It's good news if you hear that God is coming to set things right for you. So then Jesus comes. And what happens? John gets arrested. John gets put in prison. John is going to be beheaded at the end of his story. And John sends a messenger to Jesus who simply asks Jesus this question in Luke 7. Are you the one we were hoping for, or are we still waiting for someone else? Why? Because it would sure be nice, Jesus, if you would bring judgment now while I'm in prison. I'm in prison for teaching the truth. I'm about to lose my head for doing the right thing. Man, it would be nice if you would bring your judgment now. And what does Jesus say to John? Tell him the lame walk the deaf hear, the blind see. What is he saying? John, God has already started reversing people's injustice. It's not over yet, but God has already started. Now we come to our last passage, Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading here at verse number 3. After his suffering, talking of Jesus, he presented himself to them, the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On a K-1 occasion, he was eating with them. He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. First eight verses here of the book of Acts covers the last 40 days of Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension. And in that time frame, Jesus really proves to the disciples that he has risen from the dead. He spends his time working on that, that they know through convincing proofs, because this is very much a part of the gospel. Jesus died unjustly. Jesus in the story of the cross is the only innocent man in the entire story, and he's the one who dies. So what does God do? God reverses that death. God fixes that injustice. Jesus rises again. And in the story of Jesus' resurrection, God promises to reverse the sentence of death for everyone. Do you understand? Every act of injustice, if left unchecked, will eventually lead to death. But in the promise of Jesus, we have a promise that God will reject will restore, will turn around every act of injustice. If we no longer have to be afraid of death, God is already at work for justice. So the disciples asked Jesus this question, because Jesus is also teaching them about the kingdom of God. And they ask him this question, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's kind of the same question that John the Baptist asked Jesus. Is now the time? Is it going to happen now? And understand what they're asking. Jesus rose from the dead. Now would be a great time to raise an army. Now would be a great time to show yourself to people. Can you imagine if the resurrection story had included Jesus standing over the bed of Governor Pilate? And Pilate wakes up, and there's Jesus and Jesus is like, remember me? I'm king of the Jews, right? I mean, that would be an amazing resurrection story. Be like Passion of the Christ starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as Jesus. That would be an incredible resurrection story. That's what the disciples are asking. Is now the time that you're finally going to make things right for our people? that Israel will be restored. You've risen from the dead. What more can Rome do to you? And Jesus doesn't change their question. He actually answers it. And his answer is simply this. It's not for you to know when God is going to do this, but you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you so you can be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Here's what we sometimes miss about spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is about justice. Spirit baptism is about justice because God wants to empower his people so they can share his gospel so that God's justice can happen not just to us, but God wants his justice to happen through us. You ask disciples, is God going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? And I'm telling you, he's sending you to the entire world. The Messiah is going to bring justice to the nations. That's where God is sending you. That's what my spirit's doing. So three things here. What do we want to talk about with spirit baptism? Number one, we need to know that it's about the kingdom of God. Whenever you think of the kingdom of God, think justice. 
The kingdom of God is that time when God sets things right. And those who are oppressed are looking for God's kingdom to come so things can be set right for them. And the reason we sometimes miss this is that as Christians who haven't always been oppressed, we don't see ourselves in that context. There's this great line that recently was developed called Disney Princess Theology. And Disney princess theology is this idea. When you watch a Disney movie, you're supposed to identify with the princess or the prince, right? How many have ever seen The Little Mermaid? How many watch The Little Mermaid and you identify with Ariel, right? And, you know, I want to live in the world and my father won't let me. And, you know, or you identify with Eric and I want to kiss the girl. Very rarely does anyone watch The Little Mermaid and you're like, you know what? Ursula had a point. I want to be like the sea witch and start stealing some voices. We don't do that. So that when we read the Bible, we identify with Moses, but we never identify with Pharaoh. When we read, we identify with Esther, we don't identify with Haman. When we read, we think of ourselves as the prodigal son who came back to the father, we don't see ourselves as the resentful older sibling. Even though in that parable, that was actually who Jesus was talking to. We see ourselves on the wrong side of the story, and we see that God is going to set things right, and we've got to be right. So the kingdom is about justice. Spirit baptism is also about the gospel of Jesus. And if when you think kingdom, you think justice. When you think gospel, think transformation. Those who believe the good news of Jesus aren't just believing that something is going to change for them at death. But what they're believing is that the whole world is different now. The whole world is different now. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus is already king, and the world as we know it will no longer be governed by death. Understand, we live in a world where we're told that we have a limited life and an eternal death. And if that's the way we think the world works, then the world has to run on power. The world has to run on power. But if we actually live in a world where we have a limited death and an eternal life, the world doesn't run on power, the world runs on grace. And if you can understand that this is what the gospel is telling us, it will change the way you see the world and it will change the way you live in the world. The gospel is about transformation. Those who believe the good news of Jesus are being transformed by that knowledge into a people who live in the world differently, and the Holy Spirit is a part of that. If I no longer have to be afraid of death, how many know sin starts to lose some of its temptation? Let me give you an example. There's a famous website that was all about, it was like eHarmony for adulterers. It was all about people who wanted to cheat on their spouses. It was, I'm not going to give you the name, I don't even know if it still exists, but here was the tagline. The tagline was this, life is short, have an affair. Life is short, have an affair. That's the logic of sin. Life is short, make sure you get all the experience out of life that you can get. Life is short, go for the pleasure. Life is short, go for the power. Life is short, try and get everything you can. But what if life isn't short? What if it's death that's short? And it's life that lasts. Sin no longer has the power. What if we no longer have to be afraid of death 
And that means I'm suddenly free not to live for myself, but I'm free to live for others. What if it means that those who even threaten my life are those I don't have to be afraid of, and now because of Jesus, I'm free to love them? The gospel changes everything. So when we talk about baptism, baptism in the Spirit, and we're going to end with this, we're talking about a full immersion in the Spirit of God. And if when you think kingdom, you think justice, and if when you think gospel, you think transformation, when you think baptism, I want you to think presence. I want you to think presence. Spirit baptism just means this, and it is immersion into the full presence of God. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand because I'm about to embarrass you if you do. How many of you have ever liked someone on campus? You had a crush, a secret crush, right? And how many of you, when they walked into the room, you immediately noticed them and forgot everybody else? Were you ever in a conversation with someone and someone else walks in the room and you're like, yeah, got to go because of that presence? Now, how many of you ever found out that person liked you back? And now everything changes. When I was in college, my second year, my sophomore year, we had a girl attend our campus, come, come and start living on our campus. She was just had this incredible personality. And that first two weeks she was on campus, every guy was attracted to her. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that, right? She'd walk into the room and like 17 guys would suddenly decide they had to talk to her. They were, And I had a friend who also liked her, but he wasn't going to do that. And when he'd walk into the room, he'd just sit down the other side, and she always noticed him. And she would always make her way through the crowd to go talk to him, and I noticed that. So one day my friend and I are walking around campus. We'd go on these prayer walks in the evening. And he just kind of casually said to me, hey, what do you think about this particular person? And I said to him, well, I, I think she's, you know, I think she's really neat. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she is. She really is neat. That's how we talked back in the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's really neat. And I said, you know, I, I also think that she thinks you're neat. He's like, what do you mean? I said, have you not noticed every time you walk into the room, even if she's across the room, she makes sure that she makes her way over to you. Have you not noticed? Her lies light up, dude, every time you walk in. I've seen this again and again and again. At that point, he hugged me for the first and only time this guy has ever hugged me. Freaked me out. I, I mean, I like, I'm okay hugging people, but he just didn't touch people. And I'm like, oh, he hugged me. What he did, he asked her out that next week. Now they're celebrating over 25 years of marriage. Okay, not just that, not just that. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Their son is on campus this year. And you may not know that story, but if you know, because you do know this, that your mom and dad went to college with me, you're welcome. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Presence changes everything. And when I am baptized in the Spirit and I am immersed in the presence of God, I feel like I can take on the world because I know that God is with me. I know that God is with me. But what we sometimes do, and we're going to end with this and I'm going to close quickly in prayer, is we make spirit baptism simply about the experience, but we don't make it about the mission. 
The world needs to know that Jesus rose from the dead because God wants to bring justice through us, not just to us. God wants a justice that doesn't have a body count. God wants to set the world white through grace, not power. So here's what I want to pray as we close. I want to pray that every one of us will be filled with the Spirit for the right reasons. And you may be someone who you say, look, I'm really not sure about spirit baptism. I want you to pray about whether or not you want the presence of God in this way so you can do what God has called you to do. And maybe you're someone who says, hey, look, I pray in tongues every day. That's awesome. But is that all spirit baptism is to you? Is it about you talking to God or is it also about you talking to the world? Because God gave you the spirit for a reason. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God of justice. You are a God of grace. You are the God of the gospel. And you've given us your spirit so that we can bear witness to this, so the world can experience you. Lord, we know that the world is different now, but the world needs to know this. So God, I'm praying for everyone here that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can move in your power and not be limited by our own limitations. God, I pray for those in here who say, I've already experienced God in this way. Then God, my prayer is that they would walk in your power to do what you've called them to do, to be your witness, to share your gospel, so that your kingdom will continue to come, that justice would fill the earth. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may spend time in prayer. The altars are going to be open.